Okay, <laughs> we are here for the uh, victory lap on the Meng Wanzhou case. Uh, Meng is, of course, back in China, uh, free, having signed a uh, something called a deferred prosecution agreement, which we're going to get into the details of. So I'm here. I'm back with uh, KJ No, um, journalist and activist. Uh, I'm I'm back with Julie Tung. Um, a retired uh, San Francisco judge. And I'm also joined by Dan Freeman Malloy, frequent guest. Uh, you guys all know Dan. Uh, we had a four part series during the May attack on Gaza called Monsters in Our Midst. If you want to check that out, um, reminder, refresher on Dan Freeman Malloy. Um, okay, guys, uh, before we start, I just wanted to read. Um, a tweet that I saw on Q Anthony. Uh, I don't know if you guys know Q Anthony or otherwise known as Andre Domize. Uh, he's a Toronto, um, ac you know, activist writer. He, and he writes um, <laughs> a lot about a lot of wide ranging, like very, very good um, political writer and, and, and tweeter. And he, he retweeted somebody called Dan Bochner. I don't know. And he go and the tweet goes like this. Okay. It goes. Take a moment, walk outside, close your eyes, take a deep breath, unfocus your mind. Do you feel it? That calm, a sense of balance restored? Today you're living in a Canada that has the perfect amount of Michaels. <laughs> okay, all right, so. Uh, with that, with that introduction, KJ, can you give us like a rundown? Uh, we we stopped the if you recall, uh, our listeners are caught up to the moment where Heather Holmes um, was about to render her judgment and deferred it until October, until after the Canadian election. So we've had the Canadian election, we've had uh, a phone call from Xi Jinping and Joe Biden on September 9th, the election on the twentieth, and then some events since then. So. Can you take us uh, through the, the narrative? Absolutely. Thank you, Justin. It's a pleasure to be with you again. I'll just make a quick statement. You know, I really think that in the mainstream media, there was this kind of histrionic sense that the world was out of balance because the Michaels were not in their, you know, God-given uh, place. And so now we can all breathe a sigh of relief. Uh, but uh, going back to the hard facts and rather than the, you know, the speculative and imaginary world that the MSN inhabits, uh, just a quick reminder on December 1st, 2018, Meng Wanzhou, the CFO of Huawei, was arrested as she was transiting Canada. She, had, she was going through five other countries, uh, all of which had refused to arrest her for extradition as she was moving through transit in Canada. Uh, she was detained unlawfully. She was subjected to an unlawful search and seizure where her passcodes were taken away and most likely her computer and phones were ransacked for evidence uh, and her charter rights were violated. Eventually, after three hours of grilling, they turned her over to the RCMP uh, and then the case unfolded. Now, we know that the case originally as posed was that Meng Wanzhou and Huawei had 
violated U.S. sanctions on Iran. Now, the problem with this allegation is, of course, that Canada does not have sanctions on Iran. Meng Wanzhou is not a U.S. citizen. HSBC is a Hong Kong bank. Any transaction that happened happened in Hong Kong, and she was moving through Canada in a transit zone. So it's really the setup for a joke. But nevertheless, the Canadian government saw fit to arrest her, to violate her charter rights. And then as they proceeded with this fraudulent prosecution, we saw first that the case that they brought against her, which was pretextual, it was a case around fraud, uh, it, came, it became very clear that there had been no lies. At the very least, HSBC was aware of the relationship between Huawei and Skycom, which the allegation was that she had, quote unquote, misrepresented or lied. We know for a fact that it was actually the prosecution who had engaged in prosecutorial misconduct and evidence uh, tampering, that they had actually hidden the PowerPoint where she had disclosed the full range of her relationship, of Huawei's relationship with uh, Skycom. And secondly, uh, the second arm or the second leg of fraud is that there has to be some kind of harm, not merely lies, but harm has to be uh, engaged in. And again, there was no uh, ability on the part of the prosecution, nowhere in the uh, record uh, were they able to show that any harm had happened. And uh, uh, as we know from our last uh, uh, dialogue, the judge, Heather Holmes, had said, you know, where was the fraud? Isn't it strange that you have a fraud case with no harm. And isn't it strange that numerous people inside the institution had all the facts said to be misrepresented? So the entire case collapsed like a, a bag, a wet bag full of rotten, you know, uh, walnuts. It was, Sorry. it was, yes. KJ, can I just interrupt and ask Julie? Julie, is, because the, there's so many things I want to ask, like, is this normal? Like, do, is this normal for a judge to ask a question like this of the of the prosecution? Yes, it is very normal. Okay. Yeah, especially if a judge uh, finds real problematic a case that is uh, before her, and if she fails to um, ask the questions uh, that are pertinent to her decision, she fails in her duty to protect the defendant's constitutional rights. Now, in a criminal case, a judge has a sua sponte responsibility on her own to raise issues of the law and facts that would affect the defendant's constitutional rights. And it's not the same as in, in a civil case. In a civil case, if the attorneys make a mistake, they're stuck with it. Or if the attorneys enter into stipulation that is in contravention of the law, they are stuck with it. But in criminal case, the court is stuck with it and the case could be reversed for the failure of a judge to look into the issues that would affect a defendant's constitutional rights. So the judge was absolutely correct to bring up those issues. But if you're the prosecution and the judge asks you that kind of question, like that's probably like a, oh, like that's probably like a bad moment for the prosecution, right? No, the prosecution should have those answers. And if the yeah. prosecution does not have those answers, then the case should be dismissed. Yeah. And, and in, <laughs> uh, yeah. prosecution, you know, has the burden of proof in that case at trial beyond a reasonable doubt. 
And at every stage of the legal proceeding, it is the prosecution's duty to carry that burden. And of course, at each stage of the proceeding, the burden is different. Yeah. In a um, ex- extradition, prima facie showing their duty is to prove with the sufficiency of the evidence that all the elements of the charges are shown to have uh, prima facie evidence. And that is, although a low standard, still a burden that they have to carry. And at trial, it would be beyond a reasonable doubt. And so in- let's, let's say for the record that the prosecution did not have the answers to any of those questions. They were stumped and none of the uh, elements of the prosecution were actually upheld. But uh, I think the judge, Heather Holmes, was both uh, disingenuous and also covering her rear because from her earlier work where she was asked to rule on double criminality, uh, she created this legal fiction uh, where she said that she had to import the environment of the U.S. prosecution in order to determine whether uh, the case could be extradited. Once again, going back to you know double criminality, uh, you cannot extradite somebody for doing something uh, in your country uh, which is uh, not uh, which is it doing something which is legal in your country but not uh, illegal in another country. I cannot extradite a woman for drinking alcohol to Saudi Arabia if it is not legal, if it's legal for her to drink alcohol in, uh, in Canada. It's, it's absurd. Meng Wanzhou, there is no way Meng Wanzhou could have been convicted in a court in Canada uh, for the crimes that were alleged against her because sanctions against Iran were not a crime uh, in Canada. Uh, sorry, uh, violating sanctions was not a crime because there were no sanctions. So, <laughs> but but the but the judge, but I mean, isn't it again like maybe for Julie? But like, if you're saying you're importing the the U.S. standard and therefore the U.S. sanctions just for this case, aren't you basically overriding double criminality? Aren't you just saying like it's single criminality now because well, whatever they do is what we're gonna do? What what she was doing was importing just the fraud issue, mm-hmm. which is very narrow without importing the issue of Iran sanctions. That's what she did. She talked about the fraud case as being a common a double criminality issue with Canada and the United States without any regard on the Iran sanctions. She didn't really talk about Iran sanctions at all, nor even consider it. And I think a lot of people miss that part and where she conveniently left out the most important reason why Ma Wenjiao was detained. Because if fraud was committed against HSBC, wouldn't well, that HSBC prosecute her with a civil uh, case? Why is United States, the Department of Justice involved? Be- because she only limited her discussion to the fraud. And there's a lot of actually, um, jurisprudential discussions on on this issue, how Canada uh, um, laws in um, extradition should treat uh, these charges. And all these cases urge that they be charged with along with the context in which they were charged, fraud. They were charged in this case within the context of the Iran sanctions. 
But this judge just simply just dropped the whole issue of the Iran sanctions. And like KJ was saying, imported the fraud charge of the United States into the Canadian environment. And I just thought her language was just so convoluted and so just deceptive in many ways that she could have gone either way, but she chose to go down the way to find for extradition. And it, that's why I had very little hope as the case was winding its way down to the uh, prima facie evidentiary portion that she would find there was no sufficient evidence for prima facie evidence for extradition. Yeah, it's funny because if you if you go back and listen to us the last time we talked, we ended on a very pessimistic note. We were like, well, you know, I don't see how Canada's going to, you know, do the right thing now, having done the wrong thing for so long. And yet here we are. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. So three years of really prosecutorial and judicial misconduct, really three years of malicious prosecution, selective prosecution, hiding of exculpatory evidence, you know, every legal misconduct that was in the book. But, you know, just coming back to, uh, you know, the Honorable uh, Judge Holmes, you know, essentially what she did was she invented a legal fiction that allowed her to bypass the law. And I'll, you know, Jeremy Bentham has a word or two. He says that legal fiction is to justice what swindling is to trade, and it affords conclusive evidence of moral turpitude in those by whom it was invented and first employed. Fiction is a syphilis which runs in every vein and carries into every part of the system the principle of rottenness. I think that's a pretty accurate description of what Judge Holmes did in this situation. But just moving on, uh, because I know we have a lot to discuss. Uh, so uh, abruptly uh, and suddenly, uh, a negotiation was declared. The deferred prosecution agreement was declared on September 24th. And then very, very rapidly, Meng Wanzhou was returned uh, to, uh, to China. She took her trip on a chartered plane and they made sure that she did not fly over Alaskan airspace as would normally be the case because they really did <laughs> not trust the yeah. Americans not to force her down. And, and a, tw a Twitter, um, someone on Twitter, a Chinese uh, commentator, I think maybe Chinese American, but he he was saying the plane was ready for some time before the the twenty fourth. The the plane was not flying for some yeah. time. Yes, it had been charted ahead of time. So the Chinese government took this very seriously, and also uh, at the same time, the moment. Her plane took off. A plane uh, for the two Michaels also left uh, China uh, and and went uh, towards. Yes, go that ahead. one not only flew over Alaskan airspace but stopped in Alaska overnight for refueling. It's, Apparently, it takes a really long time to refuel in Alaska. Absolutely, and it, it may have had to do something with the fact that you know there was some perhaps intelligence debriefing debriefing maybe <laughs> well yeah. you know it's it's an extraordinary strange situation because the two michaels were um, arrested and charged and convicted 
with espionage. And what was striking was the deathly silence coming out of um, the uh, the ICG, International Crisis Group. Uh, they never issued, um, uh, covering never issued a denial of espionage. Uh, and uh, even now he has not said anything. There's a incredible uh, radio silence from him. And the first and only people to greet him were CSIS, the Canadian Intelligence Services. <laughs> On Twitter. This is the it was taken down, though. It was taken down right no, away. I don't think they, did they take it down or did they just tweet afterwards and say they, they retweeted and yeah. tried to explain it away. We're concerned. Like everybody, with... <laughs> every Canadian was concerned. It's not just the spy agency. Right. <laughs> But but scores of Canadians, uh, you know, taken hostage and returned. This is the first time that CSIS has ever issued a personal welcome. So it, it reminds me of Peter Sellers' spice, you know, uh, <laughs> stories yeah. of films <laughs> where where he makes all these silly things and and everybody knew that they were spying and he pretended he was not. It was. A great <laughs> spy movie in the seventies. Mr. Bean or so. Oh, so Maitriya Bhakal, he's another India-China guy that I uh, follow on Twitter, and he he said very simply on the twenty-sixth, he said, "Here's what I think happened: the two Michaels were indeed spies. China knew about it for years and was monitoring them, but detaining them would make them useless. Then, when Meng was kidnapped, it decided to formally arrest them and offer them as bait in return for her release." So. I think that's pretty accurate. Yes, they had been, I think they'd been tracked for years. Yeah. Uh, certainly Spavor uh, was worried that he was being tracked. He kept on being picked up by the same taxi driver as he was. <laughs> <laughs> Hate when that happens. Yes. Oh, so, so clearly something was going on. But, you know, going back to Spavor, you know, Spavor uh, is claimed, they claimed that he was a businessman who was doing business in, North Korea. But the fact is that he was connected to very, very high levels of the North Korean leadership. And he was, you know, involved in some fairly uh, big business ventures. So the first thing we can note is anybody who is doing that kind of work in North Korea is automatically is automatically going to be scouted out as an intelligence asset. The U.S. has such a dearth of human in North Korea that it's highly improbable that he was not scouted out or approached. There's to be... also sanctions on North Korea. You would get in trouble for doing business with North Korea. The, exactly. Like, this whole thing is about sanctions. Why is nobody getting in trouble for doing business with North Korea? Exactly. Yeah. So the very fact that Spavor was never subjected to, uh, you know, extradition requests or arrest for sanctions violations against North Korea, which are imposed by the UN, they're not unilateral sanctions, they are UN sanctions. So just the fact that 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 he was not, uh, you know, singled out for uh, extradition and arrest lets us know that whatever he was doing in North Korea may have been under U.S. or Canadian government auspices. So that lends some considerable credence to uh, the allegation that he was conducting espionage. And then we know that 
uh, Spavor and Kovrig were very, very close. Apparently, Spavor was transmitting uh, classified intelligence to Kovrig, according to the Chinese allegations. But more than that, we know that Kovrig is a member of ICG, International Crisis Group. And, you know, let's be straightforward here. ICG, although it pretends to be a non-government organization, is a deeply, deeply integral part uh, of uh, many governments. It's a kind of the elite's elite club of government organizations. It's just really a cutout. And what they do is they purport to do research in uh, diffusing conflict around the, uh, around the world or crisis around the world. That's but actually... Yeah. <laughs> they call it, yes. But actually what they do is they stoke conflict and they call down uh, intervention, military intervention on countries. And so, you know, Kovrig, uh, you know, was part of this elite group. Uh, he, he had a, a kind of a, a warrant for doing uh, research, quote unquote, on China, in particular in Tibet and Xinjiang. Uh, and uh, and he was, you know, constantly in contact with Spavor. So there was a lot going on. And, you know, I think that one of the things that happened was that I think the Chinese uh, really were sending a strong message. You know, uh, you have kidnapped Meng Wanzhou extraterritorial. Uh, with extraterritorial jurisdiction, you've really, you know, kind of uh, thrown down the gauntlet. And not only are we going to, um, you know, arrest Kovrig and Spavor, who we've been tracking for uh, years, uh, but, you know, we're going to hold them instead of simply deporting. I think that under most circumstances, they would have simply been deported, but they decided to hold on to them. And so then, you know, this became part of this kind of, uh, you know, uh, complex political negotiation. And then when uh, Wendy Sherman met with uh, or didn't meet with the Chinese foreign minister, uh, he sent her a list of things that the United States needed to do if they wanted to have any hope of normal relations. And at the top of the list was the release of Meng Wanzhou. And uh, the recent Biden-Xi uh, uh, phone conversation also apparently that was at the top of the list of demands. And nonetheless, they waited until after, I guess, Biden, whatever, what, however it worked, they, they were decent enough to wait for the 20th uh, and the election and Trudeau to win before they, um, before they did it, which probably would have made him look like a bigger idiot than he did if they had done it before that, like just. just Absolutely. Yeah. So, so the, the entire timing of this was choreographed, both in its delay and in its uh, rapidity of release and the simultaneity of the release that tells us that this was a highly choreographed and highly uh, coordinated political uh, exchange. Uh, and, uh, you know, let's be again, once again, uh, honest here, you know, this was uh, a big humiliation for the United States because it, it has a history of winning these types of lawfare yeah. cases. Uh, what we saw in the 1980s when it wanted to take down Japan and Toshiba, it, uh, it arrested Toshiba executives 
and essentially Toshiba was taken down. In the 2000s, uh, 2000, I think 12, Alstom, uh, an Alstom executive was arrested, uh, you know, held in detention for five years, two, two years in prison, and eventually he folded and Alstom, uh, the French energy company had to turn over its energy portfolio uh, to General Electric. So the U.S. has uh, a long history of doing this kind of extortion capital or hostage capitalism, mm -hmm. uh, really kind of kneecapping its uh, contenders, and it had hoped to do the same thing. But in this case, it had to back down completely. The only thing they got was uh, a DPA, and that's really kind of a threadbare yeah. excuse for almost nothing. So, so we'll get into that. But I, but um, we've just been talking about what really happened. Um, so I want to bring Dan in to uh, to to talk about to the world um, of fiction that you guys have avoided. <laughs> to the world of fiction that we've entirely avoided. So Dan, can you talk about how because I don't even have the stomach to, to look at this coverage, which is why I, I subcontracted it to you. So can you talk about how um, how it's been reported and like what Canada is and and what can for 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 listeners who don't necessarily know, like how Canada has how the can Canadian um, discourse has has evolved around this. Yeah, I mean, I get you subcontracting it, but I might have fled some of the details myself. It's pretty grim. Like in 2015, when government passed from from prime ministers, Harper, Stephen Harper to Trudeau, I remember a piece in the Washington Post that was saying something to the effect of, you know, we don't really need as the U.S. empire. I mean, I, I don't have the text on me, but the gist of the message was we don't really need someone just saying with no power to back it up, something insanely aggressive every other day. What Canada has is this sort of capital as an independent seeming country that can sometimes step in. And these moments just make that really hard to maintain. So the malleability of the law is so common that this is, I feel like in the last dialogue you guys had, you mentioned something about like the curtains being drawn back, but these are these instances where it just becomes really obvious. And in some ways it's similar for the coverage, like the speed with which narratives shift and adapt is, is like the thing to discuss because the details aren't really even supposed to make sense. I mean, the way that North Atlantic allies are coded with rule of law, I, I just, the sanctions piece, I can't get around. Like the Iran sanctions piece, the scope of extraterritoriality that's being discussed no case is ever made for. So you've got like a pretext that's being alluded to that's utterly incoherent for which a case isn't made. And then such sincere self-righteousness. But right. Like there's this law that America one one day decided that Iranians can't get food or medicine. And uh, any anyone in the world who violates this law is some kind of criminal. And, and so by the way, are you, are you for the rule of law or not? And and like, by the way, if you're reading this story, you need to be on side and we can mention, you know, the treatment of women in Iran and everything. But bear in mind, we're going to keep providing Saudi Arabia weaponry because of the sanctity of contracts, which is another part of this law as we interpret it. It's, it's really extraordinary. But what's making it particularly bizarre is there's a real push in Canada to pretend to care about white supremacy. 
and to sort like, of like to say we're we're anti-racist in Canada. To say that we're anti-racist in Canada. I mean, la- when the anti-racism strategy was unveiled in 2019, it got sort of diverted because the prime minister was revealed in all these photos in blackface. blackface. But, <laughs> but they've Did tried to like that in the states. Did you see the pictures of Trudeau in yeah. blackface and red? Oh yeah, it, that was such a farce. <laughs> but they've come. They, they've come back to it. You know. So I, I just want to like. I don't know how much of the multiculturalist hype is taken seriously elsewhere or even here anymore. It makes so little sense that it's hard to get one's hand around, but it really is. I just want to go back to some of the basic details of how all of this is playing out. I mean, anti-East Asian racism is so central to Canadian political history that it's impossible to understand the country without it. I mean, when the federal terms of the franchise were first being discussed. That is when there was first an attempt to federally regulate across different segmented jurisdictions, who's going to vote in 1885. The prime minister of the day from the floor of the House of Commons said things to the effect of, well, we all know the Aryan races will not wholesomely amalgamate with the Africans or the Asiatics. So we need in order to preserve and uphold the Aryan future of North America to Mm -hmm. strip Chinese migrants to suppress the franchise for Chinese migrants. This guy's on the $10 bill, by the way. This guy is indeed on the $10 bill. And like, there's a really funny disjuncture where people who are kind of in the know are like, look, when we're doing public politics, it's marketing, but we sort of know that none of, none of this makes sense. And what was interesting to see is at the time of Meng's arrest, there was an interview by John Manley. And he's just sort of like having this, what are we doing position? John Manley is a former deputy prime minister, head of the Canadian Imperial Bank of of Commerce. And he's just like, this was a bizarre move for us to do. And why? And and he's very frank. He says, well, you have to understand that deep in our DNA, we've been part of some, what you might call imperial power. We were part of the British empire. We weren't really even a country. We then merged as part of the U.S. empire, independent, but still we basically align with the U.S. on most issues. And at this point, we have like speaking for one of the more sort of moderate, reasonable sections of what the hell are we doing Canadian foreign policy establishment. This guy saying not only is the Iran story nonsense, but we all know that even were that true, as you're saying, the legal judgment had to work around. That's not even really what's in play. We don't think it was supposed to be in play. We, we all know from Trump's tweets that it wasn't in play later on. So he said, I think we've given the defense a really good way to say this is not an extradition matter. This is actually leverage in a trade dispute. And it's got nothing to do with Canada. It's got nothing to do with trade with Iran. Let's just call this what it is. It's an attempt to get China to buy more soybeans from the Midwestern United States and call it a day. Now, again. <laughs> wow. I didn't see that. But I mean, there was a letter by like, you know, Canada's totally foreign policy elite, you know, liberals saying, you know, let's let, let's give Mung back and get the Michaels back kind of thing. It was fairly early on in the process. Right. Is this manly thing? Part it was of like immediate. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. But like, so I don't know how, frankly, going through this, how much people are interested in the Canada angle or in what Canada is. What I would encourage anybody to do if they are, though, is look up this 2012 Discover Canada Citizenship Guide, which is still on the Canadian government website as the sort of, you know, 
what citizens should learn if they're going to pass their citizenship test, right? On page 11, it's got this thing being like, what is our multiculturalism? And it says unity and diversity. And it's got a picture of this guy, John Buchan. John Buchan was the principal intellectual arguing for the suppression of Black African voting rights in South Africa at the beginning of the 20th century. So he later went on to become, after being like an extraordinary racist, like, when I say racist, his anti-Jewish, anti-Black, like, venom is very well established. He became Governor General of Canada. But what's significant is if you read his book, The African Colony, he makes a very, very specific case for why at length you've got to suppress black voting rights. He's also got some anti-Chinese stuff thrown in there. The reason I mention this is in those original Aryan speeches I was mentioning from John A. MacDonald, the first prime minister, his position is that Chinese migrants should be treated as thrashing machines. He's like, this is a machine that we, this is a machine that we rent out. It's not some, it's not like something that votes in the country. It's not a subject of the British empire. And I mean, it's sort of grim to say, but like, it's an extraordinarily vicious explanation of a lot of the logic of different temporary worker programs where it's like, we don't want to, we're not going to pay for education. We're not going to pay for retirement. We want to do the exploitative section of adulthood. And really that's what was described for years and years and years in Canada with respect to Chinese migrants, right? And with respect to the Chinese, to Chinese Canadians, there's very explicit stuff talking about like the most, the most focused voter suppression in Canada has really often been against East Asians. And there was a big 20th century discourse of like, it's really irritating that the Japanese feel uppity enough to demand voting rights. At least the Chinese, we can sort of keep, keep disenfranchised more stably. And what the strategic logic is of these policies, we can unpack. But what they're able to do right now and what's being done is there's tapping into this like extraordinary latent racism that the sense that, that things are out of balance. Like people have been forgetting their place. Why are we, there's this extraordinary entitlement as this small country of 40 million people or whatever it is that in a world of 8 billion, this is, we're part of the ruling caste of the world. And why are we allowing ourselves to be pushed around? So yeah, like bullied, bullied, China's bullying. There was so much about China's, but even, even trying to avoid it. I saw a lot of stuff about China's bullying and like China's hostage diplomacy. And, uh, you know, yeah, it's like they kidnap Hmong and then China takes the Michaels and then they're like, huh, China's being so mean to us. They took these Michaels. How could they do this? It's bullying. <laughs> it's like there's no, no concept. And it's bullying. super vintage. Like there's all this pretending to realize that the land was stolen from indigenous people stuff. But like the game was an Anglo settler model where it was literally the case in the heyday of white supremacy that immigrants, people from the US or Britain weren't considered foreign, right? So when we last talked about this, Justin, there was all this like the claws of the panda scaremongering yeah, around Chinese that's culture. A, that's a Canadian book, you guys. It's called The Claws of the Panda. So like, I couldn't panda, read much of this stuff, but panda you were asking me to Justin to look in. And like this week, there's like a, a headline um, pandering to the panda. Like oh, these, it's just so anyway, but I laugh. But what's the concerning piece of this 
is oh my god, the Michaels are gonna write a book, aren't they? They're gonna write a book. There's gonna be a documentary. Oh god, it's gonna be so bad. <laughs> but the concerning piece of this, like I I haven't been following the case in a lot of detail. What I've been following more are the Canadian politics of, of white supremacy, which are exploding. Like Canada is punching above its weight in international white supremacist politics. Like the Proud Boys come from Canada, right? Like that. Yeah, certainly the founder passed by. Yeah passed through here. And there's even an acknowledgement that it's all sort of connected. So after the, um, after the Atlanta massacre in March, um, Peter Trudeau had an interview where he's just like, yeah, yeah, part of this has to do. And he had some like, it's very bad, but he framed it in terms of one of the factors being China's assertive and aggressive policy. Oh, wow. Oh, you kidding. Now, now, he said that in, that was the way in which he said it like he was saying there are there's this upsurge of racism and it's unacceptable as it relates to and the sentence with a, like a few subordinate clauses i don't have it on hand but it's this interview with peter mansbridge is it's like we've got covid we've got the assertive oh. and aggressive policy policy of china and and the way things are playing that's the liberal party which yeah. even the metropolitan Bri- metropolitan British had the decency to get rid of a century ago. But in any event, that's the Liberal Party. But what's happening is they're challenged on the right from the much more yeah. um, openly race patriotic um, yeah. Tories, right? Yeah, the Conservatives ran on a lot, like a lot of their platform was that we were, we're going to stand up to China. Um, and like it's with, setting aside how ridiculous the Australia decision is. <laughs> Aukus? The Anglo-Canadian Aukus is press coming. is just like a wash and FOMO. It's just like fear of missing out, being like, are we not the vintage Saxons anymore? It's Kanakas. Kanakas is coming, you guys. There's no Kanakas. We already we thought we no, had better. No, Kanakas is coming. They're, we're gonna get in. We're gonna get in there. But but I okay. guess what yeah. I would what I would just yeah. say is that like the the attacks are ongoing, and that's the part of it that's very that's very concerning. So even for example, one of the writings that flipped. Uh, from the Tories in the West Coast was a Kenny Chu, I believe his name is anyway, mm-hmm. a, a, a Tory candidate of Chinese descent, a conservative and who wanted to who who like yeah. was trying to propose a bill for registering everybody who's doing anything about China as foreign agents. Mm-hmm. And he was voted out. And there's this okay. scare piece in the London press being in the London free press being like, are because the NDP got in are Chinese like are, do we now have this fifth column of a Chinese Canadian electorate? And like that, that feeling that the, the idea that people might have a say in confronting the racism against them is just considered like an, an intolerable uppityness. So I guess yeah, all I would yeah. say is that while there's so much that's laughable about the way this narrative is playing out, it's going to take a big push for people to be able to feel confident enough to stand up to a racism where anybody who like departs from a totally fictitious, fictitious narrative right now yeah. is being attacked left, right, and center as some China agent. And yeah. like, whether it's like the witch hunting around the Confucius institutes in the university sector, or like the most benign Chinese cultural influences anywhere, it's, it's an extraordinary, extraordinarily intimidating climate. Yeah. Dan, uh, yeah. Dan, I think you really nailed it. Uh, and I think uh, what we can understand, this term aggressive or uh, assertive China or Chinese fifth mm-hmm. column, really, we have to replace the term aggressive with uppity. It really mm-hmm. goes back to the 
deepest notions of white supremacy yeah. that Asians and blacks should be or indigenous people should be subservient. Yeah. Yeah. Docile, subservient. Yeah. And I mean, I, I like I haven't looked enough to substantiate this, but I'm sure the gendered stuff plays because like the way East, East Asian women are supposed to be in this culture and on the West Coast of this country in particular, mm -hmm. it's just like the game is not we back down in the face of this representative of a respectable power. There's I'll just say there are other impressions but you can imagine okay so just to to head over to to julie now to talk about the law and the the, the prosecution the deferred prosecution agreement i can imagine I, this is this is the vision i have in my head julie is is like the u.s prosecutors going to mung and saying or like through the canadians and saying look just sign this you know just sign this guilty plea and mung going nope and then them going off and coming back and and then saying okay look just sign this thing saying you know no contest and Mung going nope and then them going back and coming back and saying okay just sign this stupid thing <laughs> that says you did some things wrong and then you can go and her being like all right <laughs> That's funny. and off she goes but like how you know how do these what is this thing what is this thing she signed how common is it how strange is it what does it mean what can we make of it well first of all you're right justin prosecutors uh, always um going after that guilty plea whenever they made a decision, uh, exercise their broad discretion uh, to charge and prosecute a crime. They had in mind the statistics that they must meet and the statistics of guilty pleas compared to the amount of cases that they charged. And they need that to prove their existence. They need that for the funding and they need that to justify what they've done in exercising their prosecutorial discretion is correct. I think in uh, Mao Wan Zhao's case, I am sure, although I don't know, nobody knows that there was a lot, a long-term uh, negotiation discussion. Even sometime last year, there was news that the uh, prosecution was offering Mao Wan Zhao to plead guilty uh, in exchange for her release, and she said no. So she had her bottom line. Her bottom line is that she will not plead guilty because she was not guilty. Then the prosecution also has this red line, that bottom line that something has to be coming back for them in order for the release. So it dragged on and on and on. And then they finally uh, worked out this Deferred Prosecution Act uh, this deferred prosecution means that the government agrees to defer prosecution for a period of time during which the prosecution against Mang will be stayed. And if Mang violates any of the conditions stipulated to in that prosecution, deferred prosecution agreement, then the government may prosecute or will prosecute. But first, let me add that these agreements are rarely used against individuals charged with criminal offenses but rather with corporations. Just last year, Airbus agreed to pay $4 billion in penalties to resolve a bribery case. And in 2015, Deutsche Bank was fined $258 million for violating Iran and Syrian related sanctions, but no executives were detained in either case. So in addition to deferred prosecution, there's also a no prosecution agreement and that could have been offered to Mao 
But no, they want that ounce of flesh. But between the NPAs, which is a no prosecution agreements and deferred prosecution agreements from 2000 through 2021 to date. And in spite of the COVID-19 pandemic, in 2020, we saw a total of 38 corporate DPAs and NPAs. So that was an uptake uh, from 2018 and 2019. And they all involved corporations and civil fines, not individual um, uh, uh, prosecutions. What so, what's a big relief is that U.S. corporations don't do bribery. You know, it's it's yeah, really right. it's really good that only foreign corporations. Sure, less sure. still Canadians. Yeah, SNC Lavalin. You know, SNC's integrity <laughs> is comforting to all of us. <laughs> it's, it's very comforting. Um, but, but but Julie, yeah. what about this clause number seven, uh, mm-hmm. which is obviously a lie that Meng agrees that her entry into this. Uh, agreement in general is made knowingly and voluntarily like okay you're locked up uh we're gonna let you out if you sign this but you have to sign that you're doing it voluntarily like yeah if you read through the statement if you read through the statements that she signs there's uh words of misrepresentation lied to knew uh well knew what was going on and 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 words that repeat itself but and that that sounds pretty bad, you know. And even yeah. I saw the, you know some newspaper recording that oh this is detrimental to Meng and and her case and and this and that. It proved that the DOJ was right after all. But we're not prosecuting her for even making misrepresentations, assuming that she did. She's being prosecuted for fraud, mm-hmm. and fraud has its own elements in order for its proof of yeah. crime. Uh, the, the DOJ attorney made these public statements that Meng admitted to defrauding a financial institution, which is HSBC. Mm-hmm. And again, if you read carefully what she was applying, uh, admitting to and apply the law of fraud against those statements, they were wholly insufficient to declare she has committed any crime. And that insufficiency is consistent with the fact that she has not pled guilty to any of the charges. Of uh, KJ uh, said it well that fraud is a crime that proved that one needs proof that one that the person lied. And secondly, there was tangible real harm to the victim in any of this. If you look at any of the statements that she made, the harm was the element of harm has never been proven or admitted to her. She couldn't admit to any harm to HSBC because she would not know what the harm was. It's only for HSBC to state it or for the DOJ to say it. But there was no discussion at all on the harm issue, which is one of the two necessary elements to be proved in order to have her uh, uh, committed a, uh, having proved that she committed extra, uh, I'm sorry, proved that she committed a crime of fraud. And at trial, the Crown Council could not give evidence of actual harm because there was none. HSBC did not suffer any monetary, property, or real harm in the transaction between Huawei uh, or Meng and HSBC. All fees, interests were paid. HSBC did not pay any fine to the United States on that transaction. Therefore, no harm to HSBC, and the fraud charge could not be substantiated under the law with the statements that Meng was asked to admit. And as to the fraud, and KJ also mentioned that I would just, um, man, that even the judge questioned and doubted that there was fraud, stating that HSBC is a big 
enough cooperation with plenty of resources and care and fully capable of learning Huawei's relationship with companies that were alleged to be doing business with Iran. And she was right because even Reuters a year before the meeting. Including between, reading the Reuters article. Yeah, Reuters. I mean, even you and I can read it. Okay. And I, I'm surprised that HSBC didn't read it. They knew or should have known about the relationship between Huawei and HSBC. HSBC was never deceived. So let's assume that the case goes to trial with these statements uh, that Mang has uh, agreed to. Irrespective of the fact that she stipulated to, their relevance is highly in question. At most, they could be admitted to prove the first element of misrepresentation, but in law, all the elements that make up the crime must be proved. And there's no way that the DOJ could prove that the second element of the crime of fraud, that HSBC was harmed. So the case would be dismissed just as the case of An Ming Hu, who is a Chinese-American scientist at the University of Tennessee. His charge of wire fraud cases was dismissed by the judge who heard that case, because in that case, the DOJ, DOJ failed to prove Professor Hu uh, caused tangible harm to NASA, the funding agency allegedly deceived by Professor Hu regarding his relationship with the Beijing University. The court found that the harm was not proven in that case and dismissed it. So all these statements that um, Ma Wanzhou signed has nothing to do with the charges of fraud and could not prove fraud. And regardless of what was said, it has no relevance to the issue of fraud unless they can prove that HSBC was harmed by those statements and they could not. There's no. Two questions arise. One, so number eight of this uh, statement or whatever says she waves, irrevocably waves any and all claims for relief, demands, rights, and causes of action uh, of whatsoever kind and nature arising from and by reason of any and all known and unknown, foreseen and unforeseen personal injury and monetary damage. So she's basically signing that, you know. I can see why they would need that. <laughs> I don't think Man Wen Jiao was thinking of suing, suing them. I is don't that, think Is that also to normal? Like, is recoup that also... her. Yeah, it is normal. normal. It is okay. normal okay. because okay. some people do sue. Like in yeah. the case of a, a Siaming Si, who is another Chinese uh, um, uh, scientist who was, whose case was dismissed by the DOJ after he was uh, prosecuted for fraud, some kind of um, yeah. fraud in his application, he sued the DOJ. And uh, unfortunately he was not, he has not been very successful, but there were a number of suits that he filed. A lot of people would file, but in this case, I think it's very <laughs> unlikely that Man Wenjia would, would want to have anything to do with the legal system in the United States oh, ever. Yeah, and I, I doubt if she'll ever have any justice there. So I, well, I she's wanna... taking, yeah, she's taking the high road. But I, you know, Justin, to be honest, that clause put in there, read as uh, guilty, you know, uh, <laughs> exactly. It's yeah. such an admission of wrongdoing. It's yeah. such yeah. an admission of having to cover your rear, yeah. and that combined with the gag order, yeah. where she's not allowed to discuss the case or any element of it, or to gainsay anything that she has said in the DFA. That tells me that there's something really, really, you know, uh, there's such a deep iniquity and shame, uh, you know, going on that they put in those clauses there. And then the last, you know, the, the, the very fact that she had to sign and say that she entered voluntarily into the agreement 
when it's clear that she was coerced into it. They coerced her into signing that she wasn't coerced. You can can coerce someone into signing that you're signing it freely. You will say. But this stuff is actually pretty palpable in the Canadian representations of how it plays out because it's like the Canadians are super eager to get on to get on board with whatever sort of smear campaign can go. But you really get a sense from U.S. centers of power where it's just like, we don't actually have a really strong case to press here. We're going to move on to the next. Like there, there is a real sense of not having a leg to stand on, it seems to me. Okay, so this is a question that, Julie, you know, I don't I don't want to necessarily put you in this position um, because, you know, you did spend your whole life um, working in this in this system. But like, was Meng was Meng not was it not like hi, super rational of Meng to not want to take a chance on the trial given how arbitrary everything has has been so far? Like I know I know we're saying that the U.S. didn't have a strong case, but it, it's in a U.S. court. Like, how do we know the U.S. judge won't just behave the same as as Heather Holmes did and said, "Yeah, you know what? There's no case uh, really here, but uh, you're off to jail anyway. So long, right?" Like. And, and if I can just like add on that, it's with all of this international assertion of like unilateral U.S. financial fiat sort of is it ever more coherent than this? Like you describe it being so malleable and just sort of the judge fitting fitting in the arguments to the desired outcome. But so much of this sort of so much of this area of law where it comes to extraterritorial extraterritorial U.S. power seems to have that like arbitrary flavor. Actually, I, I'm very shocked at um, Justice Holmes' uh, conduct and, mm. and the way she ruled. I, I'm, I'm very shocked, maybe because the, the kind of cases that I, I decide are local cases. They affect human beings and, and their relationships, and, and they involve the community. And in that sense, I think there is easy to make the decisions and follow the law and make sure that justice is meted out. I think by and large, judges are very fair. Uh, the judges that I know in my court, they strive to be fair. However, um, in, when it comes to international scene and when it's so high profile, I think the personality of these judges just take on these political um, uh, images or, or a persona that, that they they had sworn to leave behind when they took the oath to become a judge. You know, being a judge is a political process. You have to know people in order to make, uh, get the appointments or like in my case, I ran for the judgeship. So I had to go to all the political events and, and political parties and, and get support. It's a very political process and it's admittedly accepted as a political process on the way to become a judge. But once we become a judge, we leave all of that behind. We, ha- we just cannot have any more influence on, on any of the decisions that we make. That has to be left behind. And the most important ethical standard that we have as a judge to abide by is, the, is that whatever decisions that we make, it has to be made without consideration of any political or personal consequences. And that is so important. And we keep reminding ourselves of that. And when we, when we go to ethical classes, we are told that that is so important. So every judge understands his fundamental responsibility. So it was really shocking 
that those kind of decisions, I remember at the last podcast that we talked about, Justin, you were kind of kidding. Is oh, this is our Canadian judiciary or fairness or something like that. And I hope you were just kidding because I that wasn't. would be so disappointing. <laughs> it wasn't. <laughs> now, whether Ma should stick around and, and try the case, no. Politically, no, right. she should finish and terminate it as no, soon right. as possible because this is not what the country wants. This is not what her people in China wants her to do. They want the case to be finished as soon as possible. And I think she did find a way after consultation, I'm sure, with all the credible organizations or resources that she works with, that she should finish the case. So she was willing to make those admissions and let the, let the, let the, uh, the world decide for itself what had happened. Well, and that's why we're here commenting. That's why we're giving yeah. our two cents and shedding some light into this, this, this statement that she made. And, and I'm convinced that she is not guilty. I'm convinced none of the statements can, can prove that she is guilty of fraud. Well, Sarah KJ, you want to say something? Yeah, you know, Justin, I really appreciate Judge Tang's integrity and honesty. I'm, I'm certainly, if, uh, if, uh, you know, Meng Wanzhou had come into her yeah. uh, courtroom, I'm sure she would have been, you know, given a fair shake. But the fact is that Meng is facing 16 charges. The charges of quote unquote fraud, which don't obtain in Canada, which don't obtain under any reasonable standard, were just a pretext to haul her into a US courtroom. Uh, after which they would throw the book at her, they would overcharge her. You know, they had dozens of charges waiting, including the already resolved, quote unquote, tappy case from, you know, the early 2000s. So they were just going to throw anything they could at her. And, you know, I'm a little bit more pessimistic about this fiction that we call Western jurisprudence or rule of law. <laughs> That's where uh, I'm at, KJ. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know, you have the fictions of personhood, of possession, of possessions of rights and property, of equity, objectivity, judgment, reason, reasonableness, uh, agreed upon norms and standards. And then upon this, you lay down, you know, heavy legislative bricks with metaphorical analogical reasoning. And that cemented by power and money. And then you call this modern edifice of law, you know, justice. But I really, uh, I would really beg to differ. I think it's, you know, it, it is a fiction. And it's only in moments like this that we can clearly see the fiction for what it is when most of the time it's mystified away. So I'd like to get your all all of your reactions actually um, about the 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 question of whether this was a victory or a defeat. Uh, I kind of think it was a victory, but I wanted to read you this from a, a colleague of ours, who someone who's like good faith co commenting on the uh, case all along. I was a little surprised to read this. I won't say who it was, but I saw it on Facebook, and he said he said this. He's a lawyer. Uh, he's he's done um, you know international cases. Uh, and he said, what win? Sure, she goes home, but admitting she lied when she did not is under U.S. probation for four years, can still be charged. And why? She could have won the extradition case. Now we will never know. Could have won a U.S. trial, but now the U.S. succeeded in making her look like a criminal. And Huawei, 
uh, makes China look bad and that they seized the two Canadians as hostages. Why China agreed to this is beyond me. I suppose they wanted her free no matter what the consequences. Well, the consequences will not be good. And I don't agree with this, but but like maybe Julie can react first and then KJ can react. And then Dan, if you have any. I think people really do have a misconception of the charge and and her conduct as stated in those uh, statements um, as being um, a a representation that she admitted to a a form of crime. Mm -hmm. In admitting to those statements, um, they, again, they don't make a crime. They do not. The, the, in spite of uh, some of the words that were used and in a way that the uh, DOJ attorneys has framed it, she never admitted to any crime. And that is what we're here for. The reason why she is hauled into Canada and then later on ex- supposedly uh, extradited to the United States is to prove that she committed a crime. That was the ultimate goal, but she did not. And none of the statements that she made proved that she committed a crime. What about when he says she could have won the extradition trial? She could have won the, the trial in the U.S. It's all political. And, and, and why would she buck her head against a legal process that has not been fair to her and is set up in, in to be um, as, a, as really as a farce and as a lie to the public? It's, a polit- it's not as a political process. She should end it as a political process. I also think it's a victory because like Robert Pierucci, uh from Alstom thinks it's a victory. He kind of had this wistful five, you know, five minute interview on CGTN where he was like, well, you know, I didn't have, <laughs> I didn't have the backing of my company or my country, but she did. And we should, well, I can thankful. tell you <laughs> her release is definitely seen as a victory from China in China, and right? China's yeah. perspective. And it's a complete pushback against the U.S. long arm weapon, which has successfully arrested foreigners in foreign land and held them captive on Iran sanctions. Except China is the only country now that has successfully freed a hostage held yeah. under U.S. law. Yeah. And this injects a great sense of confidence to Chinese citizens yeah. who overwhelmingly supported her release. Her chance, uh, her uh a speech at in Shenzhen Airport was watched by one million viewers, and she did it without bitterness or rage yeah. about her three years captivity, so but genuine gratitude for her country China for fighting for her release. And this is not just bureaucratic talk, because if you understand China and the Chinese people, they they don't think for themselves like you know this is my accomplishment and therefore it is my glory um, to to celebrate they consider them, themselves as part of the of the Chinese community the Chinese society and the Chinese country the elation enjoyed by China compared to the blaming by the right-wing Marcus Rubio on Biden's decision to free Mang Wan Trudeau's likewise criticized by the media for freeing Mang uh, it is such a contrast Without Hmong in captivity and the two Michaels in Canada, and some, I know some Canadians are urging mending the U.S.-Canadian relationship now. So I think China is in a very good position now to continue hopefully some more positive uh, diplomatic relationship with Canada and also in a really good position to 
start off maybe on a better footing, you know, with um, United or United States start off with better footing with China mutually to move on to some of the other issues that are more important. But Dan, I read a headline that no normal relationship is possible between Canada and China anymore after this. It was in the Globe and Mail. Yeah, who, who knows what they'll be on about. I, I mean, I, I think the... I've only really paid very close attention to sanctions and international finance stuff where it's much weaker targets. Mm-hmm. And it's Venezuela, like, Iran. I mean, Yemen. I I was yeah. spending a long time in the grinding got in the grinding Palestine sanctions after the legislative elections of I guess it was two thousand and seven or whatever, um, yeah. two thousand and six, and there it's just like, you know, you can't get any money through in through anything yeah. because U.S. banks have global jurisdiction, so it's like going village by village and being like, no, you it you can't have sewage because we found that yeah. this like you can't have medical equipment because this nurse has this party affiliation or whatever all of which is to say there's such projection where china is concerned where it's like this aggressive u.s policy and then this idea that china is just trying to put everybody else in their place and in fact there was the, like one of the you want another headline from canada i think there's a headline this week something to the effect of like world buckling under weight of china hegemony or something oh, like this, this sort of just Christ. just like nonsense right and i guess it's just like the reality really is especially in sort of a long view of empire that you've got this reassertion that people are very uncomfortable with but like I don't think fighting this out, this one out in a court, I wouldn't trust being on U.S. territory for a millisecond. No, don't go there. <laughs> but, but look, like, at, look at the flight path. You know? exactly. Mine did not want to be a thousand feet well, over. In fact, I don't even know if they would, because that's the also, the other thing is like, it, there's this weird dynamic where certainly in Canada, it's the case, and I don't know if it's the case in the U.S., where like, you whip your population into sort of like a racist hour power frenzy where then it does become tricky, like what you can do because you're sort of enthralled to and accountable to the bloodlust is the wrong word, but like the vengeful vibe where it's, I think, much easier, for example, for the Biden administration to say, oh, this happened from British Columbia versus being like she was on U.S. territory and then we let her go or something. Yeah, right. So I just, I just like the question of victory or whatever. I mean, the the wide historical reorientation of U.S. racism towards like this China aggression is very interesting to look at. I hope that can be kept in check. But the question of like how this is proceeding, I think this is one piece of it. And, and we can't abstract it from that broader context. So, KJ, I wanted to ask about business because you uh, you mentioned um that you know it, this whole thing was set up by the hong you know the hong kong shanghai banking corporation uh, <laughs> a banking corporation with a noble tradition going back to the opium war um uh, nothing to do with hong kong or shanghai really it's a british uh bank mm-hmm. of occupation and organized crime continues in that tradition as far as i can tell um and you were saying if if Meng is extradited you may want to dump your shares in HSBC. But, you know, will there be consequences for HSBC, do you think? I mean, are people uh, looking 
unfondly at HSBC in China right now? It, you know, Justin, I don't have a crystal ball, but if I did, I would say it's probably in most people's interest to short HSBC. Uh, you know, it has done such, uh, it has been such a collaborator with this extraordinary injustice. And remember, it's not just the kidnapping of, um, of Meng Wanzhou. But this was really uh, an organized attempt to kneecap Huawei. Uh, and that really was how this was being used. And so I think, you know, there are a lot of people who have uh, a lot of bad blood towards HSBC, as they should. I mean, this is an organization which has been criminal since its inception in its history, in the untold suffering that it uh, you know, uh, levied on China during the entire, uh, you know, with its trafficking and facilitation of uh, opium uh, and the banking for opium. And up to this present moment, it's been involved in drug trafficking and money laundering. So I think, you know, I would, I would certainly, I would not, if, you know, if, if you're so inclined, I would not uh, encourage anybody to buy HSB <laughs> stock. But... <coughs> You know, coming back to your question about victory or loss, you know, these may be the wrong questions. At the very least, I, I say that if it was a defeat, it was a fairly honorable defeat. But I tend to think along the lines of Pierucci, and he seems to think that it was actually a victory for the world, that uh, the world and at least one country can stand up to this kind of bullying. And once you break that trance, once you break that illusion, uh, then that gives hope uh, to other people. If only, you know, uh, Australia had the same uh, dignity and uh, principles to stand up for Assange or any of a number of other people, I think we would be in a different <clears throat> world. Uh, I, I do think the, uh, the, the best statement of what this means comes from Meng Wanzhou herself. And she said, yeah, she said, without a strong motherland, I wouldn't enjoy the freedom that I have today. Wow. There is always a light to give me warmth. There's always a star in the vast universe to there to provide me hope. What's precious is that we are born in a great country. It lit up the darkest moment of my life and led me to the long journey home. The way home, despite all twists and turns, is the warmest journey in the world. Wow. Well, I'm not going to ask any more questions after that. <laughs> but I, I think KJ has put it so correct, uh, correctly that I think if, if there's anything to help unify China and the national spirit, it is Ma Wanzhou's case and the way China was able to successfully bring her home and bring her home so royally. I mean, they sent a, a Chinese-owned uh, plane. And if you see the plane has the, uh, the Chinese flag on it with the, the five star, that shows it is a Chinese plane. And that escorted her home carefully, cautiously, and safely, diverting from any context with uh, US airspace, going to, uh, from Canada into Russia, and then from Russia uh, into China. It's just amazing. Everything was so well thought out. I mean, all these, you've got to have 
a remarkable impression on a young Chinese kid who's growing up seeing what this country is doing. So if anything, China is gonna be more united and China is implementing a lot of new policies um, in accordance with the socialist, um, as a socialist country. And it needs a lot of support from the people. And I think this is a time that they really could use even more inspiration and more support uh, as evidence from the Man Wanjiao release. So that in itself is really important. I also wanted to add to um, what, uh, Justin, what you're saying about is China gonna exact, um, exact any revenge on HSBC? Well, I'll quote a Chinese saying too, since KJ is so good at quoting good sayings, that there's a Chinese saying that for a gentleman to exact, exact his revenge, 10 years is never too late. So there's 10 years to go. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the last thing I wanted to say is just that you like, there, there's all these war plans coming out, right? With AUKUS and we're gonna nuke them and we're like anything that America can try to do to try to hold China back now from taking basically its historical place as the most advanced society in, uh, in the world, which it had for, most of recorded history or whatever, but <clears throat> but um, the 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 best hope is not hot war. The best hope is is always to get collaborators, to get people inside the the country and the elite who believe in your project more than they believe in their own. And like, man, is that ever gonna be hard after this? Like that was this was if this like if this was a blow to any project, it's a blow to trying to find some neoliberals in China who can get some support now for being pro-American. Like how are they gonna make that argument now? Mm. How are they gonna make the argument that, you know, it's gonna be sweet and nice to be a pro-American executive now after this? Good luck. 